Let's turn our Bibles now to Psalm 59. If you're using a Black Pew Bible, Psalm 59 can be found on page 447. I read a very interesting essay that I think will be useful for setting up Psalm 59, so I want to share some highlights and some of my own reflections that are mixed in from this essay. Then we will exposit the Word of God from Psalm 59, and then we will conclude with how this essay applies to the Scriptures. Here it is. Why is it that our obsession in this world with sports continues to grow? Is it just because it provides a little entertainment in these short, fleeting lives of ours? Well, I think we should take a little deeper dive. And if we do dive deeper into this question, we catch a slightly bigger, more exotic fish answering the question, why is our world obsessed with sports? On the one hand, Whether you are a fan fanatic or an avid athlete or you could care less about anything that has to do with sports. We all agree at the end of the day it's just a game. So then why over Thanksgiving break will somebody play Monopoly and get really touchy with family and friends? Have I ever done that? My sister's laughing. It is because games and sports tap into the deeper part of our psyche. There is an implicit and automatic response that humans get reveling in being better than someone else. Oh, the joy and euphoria when your tribe, your team, dominates the other. There's no wonder why one prominent sociologist said that competitive sports are basically a way for men and women to play and pretend at war. If we listen to almost any interview or athlete, coach, after a sporting event, before a sporting event, they will do something like Tennessee's head coach once did. Oh, the team we're playing like the German army when the Allied forces stormed Normandy. Or as LeBron James recently tweeted, I'm focused, no prisoners, and I have no friends when I'm at war and beside my fellow soldiers. In other words, sports are a fun and safe way for us to act out our impulses for war and domination. So what is it, though, that binds these two topics together, sports and war? Chris Hedges has written a book called War is a Force that Gives People Meaning, and he claims that there are things in this world that bring people closer together, and the one he believes that is the most powerful force for uniting people is war. Here's a quote from his book. Many veterans will admit that the experience of communal effort in battle was the highest moment of their life. Why is this so? Because individual identity gets swallowed up by a corporate identity. Soldiers lose their personal pronouns of I and me. It becomes ours and we. A soldier's individual goals and faith loses its central importance 
And the reason for this is that self-sacrifice on the battlefield becomes a relatively easy thing when swallowed up in battle. End quote. Therefore, one of the reasons a soldier will fight in battle is because of the great assurance they will have of their ongoing legacy, their personal immortality. They may die on the battlefield, but they will not die. They will know that with their fellow comrades that they've fought with or their countrymen, that their dying was not a waste. But do sports and competition provide a similar form of ecstasy, of unity? Well, not exactly, but it does get somewhere close. How else can you and I explain the reality of grown men in the recent years proudly admitting on sports radio that the only time they've ever cried in public was when the Cubs won the World Series? In our boring, routine, ordinary lives, we exist as individuals who wake up to try and satisfy the fleeting pleasures of our heart as we pursue our individual goals. But once you feel the effect of something like winning the World Series and thinking that you're actually a part of the team, it lifts you beyond yourself. And the essay writer says, it's a kind of self-transcendence. And that, my friends, is the bigger exotic fish to answer the question of why we are so obsessed with competitive sports. They are a means and a way for transcendence, or as we say in Christian lingo, worship. To the degree that someone feels connected to a group of people will be to the degree that they will act in ways that serve only their petty or puny personal goals. There are arguably more miserable people during America's peacetime and prosperity than there were during the days of World War II. This means each one of us today, as we live in peacetime and prosperity, are in danger of becoming poor and miserable people until we can find an avenue for transcendence. And for many people, that avenue is sports. It can be a galvanizing force in a scary and mundane world. So it's no coincidence, the author writes, that the rising popularity and the astronomical amounts of money that are put into competitive sports have risen risen exponentially during the exact same time religion and spirituality has declined in the Western Hemisphere. Without religion, there is an increased desire, consciously or otherwise, for us to find something bigger than ourselves. But it is not only sports that you could point to. Drug use itself has gone up at the same time. Ecstasy alone has tripled in the last decade. It should be obvious to anyone that's willing to look. We crave connection and transcendence, and therefore many of us crave sports to give us some kind of pure sense of unity and glory. And at its very best, it does hold out the hope of dishing out some sort of ecstatic religious experience of binding us together with someone else, kind of like when we're at war as a nation. For the athlete who's playing, the greatest thrill is to experience connecting to a a goal or a dream bigger than yourself. And it multiplies when you realize that at the same time your ego gets to bask in the glory of everybody recognizing your amazing abilities. But at the same time, Olympic gold medalists or World Cup winners 
or Super Bowl heroes will regularly and consistently testify to having serious depression after the moment of their greatest success because they realize that there will be no way for them to ever experience that joy again. So what do we make of all of this, says the author. This is the very last paragraph. And I found this dumbfounding that he concluded the essay this way. So what do we make of all this? Well, I say, author again, not Pastor Phil, religious meditation, or whether we call it mindfulness, is way too boring and basically unfeasible in our loud Western society. And partying and drinking and doing drugs are fun temporarily, but quickly become destructive and damaging if you live for them and do them every day. So I conclude, a practical outlet for daily self-transcendence must be found in the arts and music and sports. Sports can powerfully bind us together as a community, and they can delight us superficially, but spiritually. And I believe these games will make us better people. Final sentence of the essay, so long may they reign supreme. Since religious meditation is far too boring and unfeasible in our loud Western society, let's turn our attention to the Bible. Psalm 59, in a poem that was written 3,000 years ago in Hebrew, that's been passed down, translated, and preserved for us. And we're going to give some minutes of your time to meditate on this transcendent scripture passage that will offer you a supreme glory to sports. Let's read God's word together. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see You, Lord, God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Selah. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips. For who, they think, who will hear us? But you, O Lord. Laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. Oh, my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down. O Lord, our shield, for the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips. Let them be trapped in their pride for the cursing and lies that they utter. Consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more. 
that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Selah. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, brothers and sisters, for this wonderful, transcendent word. In one sentence, I would summarize Psalm 59 for the sake of our time and meditative exercise. When we see God triumph over David's enemies, we too will sing of God's strength over our enemies. One more time. When we see God triumph over David's enemies, we too will sing of God's strength over our enemies. That's the big idea. The outline to unpack the big idea will be three arguments why I believe that's the big idea. Argument number one. This big idea is understood when you understand structure. First point, the structure of the psalm points to this being the main point of the psalm. The structure of the psalm is verses 1 to 10, part 1. Verses 11 to 17, part 2. If you're having a hard time remembering that, or a year from now, you're wondering, what was the structure of Psalm 59? maybe in your Bible or in your notebook or however you want to record this on an electronic device, you might say, the Selahs. Pay, pay attention. The Selahs do not always give instructions for the structure, but in this case, I believe they do. Look at the end of verse 5. The end of verse 5, you have immediately a conversation about dogs in verse 6 and 7. So 1 through 5, you have a certain topic, save, deliver, save, deliver. Here's the reason why I need saving. Here's what I want you to do, O oh God, Selah. One through five, Selah, dogs. Then, verses eight, nine, and 10, the Lord laughing, the Lord holding the nations in derision, and then notice the key word, strength, watching, fortress, steadfast love, and God triumphing over enemies. End of part one. So the Selah really helps there. One through five, Selah, dogs, strength. Then we repeat itself. Same structure happens again in part two. Verses 11, 12, and 13. Notice, kill them, make them totter. Oh Lord, you're my shield because these people with their mouths and their lips, we, I want them trapped. Look at the way they're cursing and lying. Consume them, consume them. Let them know that you are the one true God that rules to the ends of the earth. Selah. So, so notice the parallel between part one and part two. They both begin with a request. God, save, deliver, destroy, consume because of these reasons. 
Selah. And then the repetition of dogs, 14 and 15. Uh, Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. I need saved from my enemies. Those enemies are being described as dogs. And then there is a confident statement of watching in part one that is paralleled with singing in part two. So the last two verses, 16 and 17. Notice the key words. I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress, a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress. Then God who shows me steadfast love. The God who shows me steadfast love. Do you see it? It's, it's kind of obvious once it's pointed out. Oh, the Selah. It helps as a marker of part one and part two. The dog thing was pretty repetitive. And then those key words, refuge and strength and steadfast love being repeated. It's, it's one of the easier psalms to organize and just see the organization of it. So when you follow those basic observations, what do you conclude? I conclude that this psalm in part one is saying, I need saved and delivered from enemies and I will wait. I will watch. I will put my trust in God's strength. Part two. I need saved, I need delivered, I need God to bring his wrath and his judgment on my enemies. They are like dogs. I will sing. The waiting turns into singing. The seeing, the watching turns into salvation singing. So that's where I got the big idea. Does it make sense? When we see God triumph over David's enemies, we too will sing of God's strength over our enemies, you, me. But before we get to us, let's look at argument number two. Why is the big idea that when we see God's triumph over David's enemies, plural, we will sing of God's strength over our enemies, plural? Well, let's first talk about David's enemies. Point two, the big idea is this because of the stories that are referred to in this psalm. I think there's at least three or four stories, but we're not going to waste too much of your precious Sunday morning. I say that facetiously. I know many of you got many important NFL games to go watch. But let's at least, for the sake of time and attention, consider two stories that are referenced that undergird the big idea. First, do you notice that this psalm was set to a certain kind of theme or tune, do not destroy, a miktam of David, but then here's the story. When Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. And Kenny just read for us from 1 Samuel chapter 19. That's the historical context. David has defeated Goliath. He's a hero. Saul is the king. Saul has tried three different times to kill David prior to this story that's referred to in 1 Samuel 19. And that's not even to reference what we've talked about for the weeks past. If you're trying to like not get confused in timeline, we're actually going back in time. David's not on the run yet. He's in his house and he's married to none other than Saul's daughter, Michael. So David's a married man living in his house and as you read in 1 Samuel chapter 19, David is being pursued like a hound of dogs 
that are hungry to devour. And they're pursuing him and surrounding his house. And Michael tells a lie and helps him escape. Another example, like Rahab, back in the earlier part of the story of the Bible, where a woman says something that's not true and deceives the deceivers and the wicked dogs, and then they don't get David, and he escapes, and then he goes and runs for his life. And that's what we've been talking about in our previous Psalms. But here, as we find ourselves, David's living in the land of Israel. He's married. Things, things are, are not great, but they get worse. And so that's clearly the enemies that you would think are being referred to in this story, wouldn't you? Why, why would you think that? Because it says in the scriptures, in the original Hebrew, this story was when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. But if you pay close attention, which you should, if you're not too distracted, read slowly and carefully, what do you start noticing about the description of the enemies in the actual psalm itself? Uh, they don't sound like King Saul. Here's what I mean. Deliver me from my enemies, oh my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. All of that could be Saul and his minions. Verse 2, deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. Again, that fits the story. Verse 3, for behold, they lie and wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me for no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine. They run and they make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see you, Lord, God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish. Wait a second. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations, the Gentiles? That's not Saul. Saul is not a Gentile. He's a Jew. There is a disconnect between verse 5 and the superscription about David's enemy, Saul. So, You've got options. You've got to figure out, what do I do with that? How do I reconcile the fact that the psalm seems to be talking about the nations as the enemies? And then David, in the little title, is saying that it's when Saul was trying to kill him. I think the best solution is that David, more than likely, is referring back to that deliverance and that the future people of Israel, his descendants, are reading this psalm in light of that past deliverance and saying, we will have future enemies. The nations, the Gentiles, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. And they will come just like King Saul did. And so therefore, I think that there's more going on than just the superscription. But it gets better. Let's talk about the dogs. You guys love dogs, right? I mean, most of you I know, as I talk to people in this church, they're dog lovers. You own dogs, you love dogs. I don't have any dogs. I'm not anti-dog. I don't want a pet, but I'm not anti-dog. The writer of Hebrew, uh, in Hebrew, the David, the Old Testament authors, they were anti-dogs. Especially these kind, wild dogs. I think maybe a good parallel translation just for your modern ear is like wolves with rabies, you know? Picture that picture in your mind, when you read these verses about the dogs. That's what they're talking about. Wild, not domestic pets, but dogs that would have run loose all over in the ancient world. And there's just this 
long tradition of thinking about a dog like this as being an ultimate insult. Do you know anybody in the Old Testament that talks about being a dog? Do you know anybody that talks about being a dog that's related to David? The answer should be yes, which is why I think something very unique and beautiful is happening in this poetic meditation. It requires patience. This isn't just on the, on the quick, easy-to-grab surface. You've got to dig for this. You've got to be patient. You've got to read and reread the scriptures. And what I believe is going on is a reference not just to King Saul when he tried to kill David, but that King Saul has become none other than the giant Goliath. Here's why. In the story of David and Goliath, the Philistine soldier moved forward and came near David in the battle, the well-known story of David versus Goliath. And when he looked and saw David, he mocked him. He laughed at him. He disdained him, for he was just a little boy, a youth. He was ruddy, and he was handsome, but he was no soldier. And the Philistine Goliath said to David, Am I a dog that you have come to me with sticks? And if that was the only reference to our story, I'd be like, ah, that might be a little bit of a stretch, Pastor Phil, but that's not the way the story ends. The Philistines started cursing David by his own Philistine gods. He said, come to me, David, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David says back and listen to these words and see if Psalm 59 doesn't pop. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Same description as verse 4 of Psalm 59. This day, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied, he will deliver, same word as verse 1, into my hand. And I will strike you down and I will cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of Philistines this day, the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Does that sound like verse 9? Sorry, which verse? Verse um, 13? It does to me. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel. And all of this assembly will know that the Lord saves not with swords and spears. For the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hands. I think that there are two stories that are being referenced in Psalm 59. At least. David was delivered from Goliath through the mighty name of Yahweh, the host of angels' armies. That's what that Lord of hosts means. He is the Lord, the captain of the army of heaven. And he's appealing to that power by saying, he's on my side, I'm going to win. This is not a battle between a small little boy and a big giant. This is a battle between the gods of the Philistines and the one true God, Yahweh. Reread 1 Samuel and realize that this is about a cosmic war. And David did win. And then King Saul becomes nothing better than a dog 
that tries to kill David. He personifies everything that Goliath is. And David writes in such a way to encourage future Israelites that see how the dog Goliath got his head chopped off. Do you see how then Saul died and I became king? Oh, for any future nation that tries to come against the host of angel, the Lord of hosts, the, the Lord of angels' armies, they, they will not stand. You can just step back and watch him work. And the end of it, We'll be singing, a collective singing. We will sing. This is why this song is given to the choir master, so that there will be a euphoric, transcendent experience of not watching a sporting event, but watching God work to save and deliver in life and death situations, not games on the battlefield that is soldier field. Something much, much greater is at stake. Life and death, heaven and hell, spirits and powers beyond your wildest imagination are alive and real. And the God of the Bible is supreme over all of them. And the whole world's going to know when they see the deliverance of David's God save David. And then David's children and David's citizens in his kingdom. Just like he saved David, so he will save the people of Israel. That's why I believe this is not just talking about one event. It's about a trajectory of a faithful covenant, steadfast love, a promise that he made to his people and said, I will not give up on those people because of my love, my covenant keeping, never giving up, never stopping forever love. Argument number three. If our psalm is structured in such a way, point one, to say that watching God save will lead to singing, and that point two shows that the way this is written is to talk not just about David's one instance, but actually God's salvation throughout history, and that therefore it can be applied and passed down. Then brothers and sisters, embassy church members, guests, non-Christians, God wants you to see his deliverance and salvation so that you will sing, that you will come together week after week and celebrate the victory of God's triumph over his enemies. So point three, this is the big idea that you and I can apply to us as members of Embassy Church in 2022. We too can sing and have confidence that he will deliver us from our enemies because of the Holy Spirit's strategy in points one and two. How, do you, how else do you make sense of the superscription of Saul chasing after David and then the psalm being more generally applied to the people of God? That strategy to then make Saul be none other than Goliath is a strategy that the author of Scripture, I think, sometimes maybe doesn't even realize he's doing it, but the Holy Spirit does. And when you read the New Testament, you see time and time again that the Spirit's strategy with Scripture is to show, oh, they, they became the Pharaoh of Egypt. They became just like David in a good way or just like the nations of Babel in a bad way. That's, that's just the way the Bible works. If you, if you have enough time and patience and you commit to reading scripture, you will see the way that it's like a layered 3D picture. So you've got like a background picture and then you add another transparent 
photo on top of it that builds on it. And it keeps getting added to a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth layer. The Bible is continually adding pictures on top of each other. And you can see the whole of what God's trying to communicate. And eventually, as you keep reading all of Scripture, you realize that that picture is none other than a person named Jesus Christ. So what the Spirit is doing in his strategy to guide David's writing is a strategy that New Testament authors use repeatedly when talking about Jesus Christ. David's deliverance will be repeated. It will be even greater and better and more beautiful and more spectacular and more worthy of transcendent worship than anything else that you could ever lay your eyes on. So when you see God deliver David, Solomon, their children, rescue them out of exile, bring them back into the land of Egypt, rebuild the temple, and then the man, Jesus Christ, walks the earth. And the one true man for whom Psalm 59 is definitely not true of in all of us, in the sense that, look, look, look at the way he says, For behold, they lie in wait for my life. They stir up strife against me for no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. For no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Is there anyone greater than Jesus who can read these words and say, That's true of me in every instance of every moment of my day. I am the truest David who was delivered because there was no sin and no fault. That's Jesus. And that's what the New Testament does. There's no explicit reference to Psalm 59 in the New Testament. But if you learn the Spirit's strategy, even just the way that it works in this one psalm, and it's referencing to older stories and the way that they get future applied to the nations in Israel, you'll realize, oh, no wonder they kept talking about how Jesus is the greater this or that. The greater temple, the greater David, the greater Jonah, the one who delivers us from a greater enemy. Sin, Satan, death. So as we land the plane, as we conclude and apply this to our lives, I have two points regarding you and us. One, if we get this big idea that David's deliverance from his enemies, when we see this, it will lead to singing about Jesus Christ and his deliverance for us. First, you should realize that if Saul can become Goliath, you could become God's enemy. Who's to say that you and I haven't, in a similar way, done these things that we read in Psalm 59? For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride for the cursing lies that they utter. Anyone here want to say, I've never lied? These wicked people are being described as dogs because of the deceit of their mouth. And in a much similar way, we are told in the New Testament that we are now God's enemies. By nature, children of God's wrath. Consume us in wrath till we are no more. That's what David prays for his enemies because his enemies are not just David's personal enemies. David's enemies are God's enemies. Like fighting Goliath, this is a battle between God's, between God's promise and God's word versus the, the words of God's and lesser powers of the world. 
And if you are on the wrong side, on the wrong team, then God should destroy you. So you should first and foremost think about the reality that you are in a cosmic battle and war and you need to figure out which jersey are you going to wear? Which team are you on? Have you been baptized? Have you repented of your sin? Have you put your trust and say, I want to be on Jesus' team and I want to see the salvation that wasn't just for David, but the greater David, Jesus, as applied to me. And could you imagine that if you have any sense of feeling as a human being, as we heard in our opening essay, of euphoric ecstasy-like joy and transcendence because of watching a football game, a soccer match, how much greater of a corporate identity and a melting away of your personal puny ambitions and goals and being swallowed up into the glory of the almighty God's plan of salvation and sanctification in your life to take you from an enemy that is opposed to God and be seated at the table at the right hand of God, seated in Jesus Christ. If you were to see that that's the actual story of salvation, the story of scripture, and the spirit's strategy is to tell you that you too can sing and have salvation for yourself. If you are here today and you're not a Christian, we want to invite you into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We want you to see that what we're seeing in Psalm 59 is like a shadow, but then we turn a corner in the New Testament and that shadow is not a shadow anymore. It is Jesus. He's the one who delivers from the cosmic enemy, the greatest enemy, not just Goliath, but Satan himself, the powers that are arrayed against God and his angels, the host of angels' armies is none other than the captain, Jesus Christ. And do you want to know why you would want to? Again, speaking to any of you that are not a Christian, the reason why we're on the Christian team is not because we figured this out but because we were overwhelmed and melted by God's faithfulness to his people and by the way in which he defeated Satan, sin, and death. Well, what's the way he defeated sin, Satan, and death? Because honestly, Pastor Phil, if I'm reading Psalm 59, it's kind of confirming my conclusions. God's really angry and he's violent, and I don't like that. Fair, but that's failing to see the Spirit's strategy of the whole testimony of Scripture and how the shadow becomes crystal clear, high definition, beautifully accurate. The love of God to both crush enemies and bring salvation happens not by God bringing swords and force and beauty but by becoming ugly so that when people look at him, they think he is despicable by people laughing at him. The God of the Bible will get the last laugh because as they, in Matthew 27, as Tyler read for us, crowned him and mocked him with thorns, they didn't realize they were crowning the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When they beat him and he looked weak and miserable and pitiful, they didn't realize they were unleashing the greatest strength and the greatest power that Psalm 59 points to. The God of strength will be unleashed 
in utter humility and weakness. When you realize that God did that for you and that the God of violence and vengeance actually took upon himself the wrath that we deserved as his enemies, then you start to see the scripture strategy to fulfill all of Psalm 59 so that God can be both just to punish sinners and the justifier of sinners like you and me. So today, here we are, gathering as Christians, singing. We've done it three times already. We've sang three songs. We're going to sing more after this is over. Why? Not because we're beautiful. Not because we're strong. It's because we find our source of strength in the ugliness and in the weakness and in the self-sacrificial love that's displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ. You will think about strength And what true strength is completely different if you give your time and attention to a greater transcendent message than the glory that can be found on the real battlefield or the fake pretend one. So let's strive to be a church that invites people that are deceived and blinded by the God of this age and the real cosmic battle that's going on where they don't realize it as they numb themselves to fixes of Sunday glory when their team wins the championship and they finally feel like, yes, go Cubs, only to find out Cubs didn't even make the playoffs. It didn't last very long, did it, Cubs fans? I'm no Cubs hater. But the glory of sports is fleeting. The glory of the supreme savior is eternal. We have a hope to offer our society, not just our individual selves, but our society. And this church should be a lighthouse and a beacon to help expose the idolatry of our society and welcome them in to a greater, supreme, satisfying glory. That's our mission. That's why we exist. Embassy Church, we exist to make disciples of all nations to the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray for our community and for our world in this specific way. Would you join me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, as we have heard from Psalm 59, there is a greater glory than all of the fleeting pleasures of fame and money and popularity that the world could ever offer. And the repeated testimony of the top sports athletes who quickly spiral into depression because they realize they'll never get that joy again are screaming at us that you have made the world in a certain way. You have made us with a God-shaped heart and only When you step into that heart, will we find true satisfaction for the longings of our soul? So we want to pray for each one of us first and foremost. We would understand ourselves in this cosmic story of battle between spiritual forces that we too were lying dogs and enemies of your holy purposes. We love in our sinful nature to think that we know better than you. We're proud, we're arrogant. We are not aligned rightly with your word. We're lazy. We don't want to give our time and attention to the glory of your word because the quick 
joy of drugs, sex, beauty, of a compliment because we've so tuned our figure and somebody says, oh, you look so nice. Way to take care of yourself. God, we know that the outer body is wasting away, but yet we're blinded to keep digging holes into our our schedules and in our lives for empty, worthless idols that have no power and no strength. Help us, God. Open up our eyes to see the utter vanity that is pursuing the strength of this world and all of its promises of power. Oh God, we pray that the members of Embassy Church will sing now with unity, with joy, with an eternal satisfaction, knowing that what we're talking about is not fairy tale stuff. It's not pretend. It's real. It's blood that was dripping from a cross. It's true humans walking this earth. It's rooted in human history. It's already done. The deliverance is complete. Oh God, I pray that we would be wrapped up and revel in this greater glory. Like a soldier that realizes I no longer exist. I'm now a part of we and us. And as we eat the bread and as we drink the cup, make us one in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.